0: For December 2nd, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 596. I got him confused with the actual Fat Tony. overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Though sometimes we just forget about it. The Overthinkers are like uh, we're like a fraternal organization. We're like a a social club. Uh, We're never happier than when we're hanging out together and doing legitimate business. I am Matthew Rather. I am here with Petey Fences Fenzel. Hey, Petey the (laughs) Fence, because he fences, because he can sell your stolen goods pete how's
1: business (laughs) people used to call me fenster sometimes in imitation of the usual suspects character uh, so I guess I should talk. He talked kind of weird. I guess I'm doing good. I've got a whole bunch, a whole van full of televisions outside, and I hope they're not stolen by ninjas and or Vin Diesel. So we'll see how it goes.
0: <laughs> I was about to say, is your Honda Civic just full up with uh, with you know standard definition DVD players? Um, and is yours uh, not. <laughs> and we call and we we uh, we got uh, we got Marky shreds. Uh, Uh, Lee here. We got Marky Shreds because he shreds on the guitar and also because he puts his victims into a wood chipper.
2: Mm, nice podcast you got here, guys. Real shame. Real shame. if something would have happened to the hosts We're
0: here to talk about The Irishman, which is a uh, three and a half hour meditation on the death of cinema. It also happens to be uh, a mob movie, but kind of an anti-mob movie because everyone seems kind of miserable before, during, and after their association uh, with our thing with our with the uh, you know with the the Cosa Nostra. So, um, it, it stars... Uh, it stars Robert De Niro, uh, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci. I guess I should go in, in another order. Uh, uh, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Al Pacino. Um, Robert De Niro, the star. Joe Pesci, I think, sort of the standout performance. Um, d- 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 sort of amazing. And as I said, it's three and a half three and a half hours long. Uh, I don't know, guys. Like Pete, is it fair to call this... Sort sort of an anti-mob movie or perhaps a mob anti-movie given that its real subject is the death of cinema
1: well firstly it's three movies probably right or like two episodes of television around a movie that's a
0: good yeah that's a good point like we actually we were talking about this so I i watched it in chunks i did you go straight through the whole thing
1: no, we took a break for lunch.
0: Oh, God. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we, took an, we took an intermission. So I, I it's watched... It's a long yeah.
1: three and a half. Like, I've watched three and a half hour movies that feel like they just flew by. It's a long three and a half
2: hour. I, I actually disagree, but we might get into okay. that later. Fair enough. I was never not engaged,
0: right? I was never, like, bored by what was going on. But it didn't make you feel the passage of time, which is, I guess, appropriate in a movie about aging and about, like... Anyway, sorry, moving on. Uh, uh, Anti-mob movie, Pete?
1: Sure, I would say, yeah, it's like a, it's a Forrest Gump movie, right? It's like a Forrest Gump mob movie where the goal seems to be to kind of visit and unwind, at least maybe not, if not the goal. I don't know, I don't really venture to say I understand the intention of it. And of course, I decry intention so much. But my experience of it is as a Forrest Gumpy tour through the history of mob movies And all of the different ideas and tropes that are kind of baked into mob movies and kind of unwinding them from the perspective of a kind of jaded old man who has realized what was lost or missed in all that time or maybe even has not really come to fully understand what. Was wrong, right? What was what was off? What was wrong? What was lost? What was paid? What the sacrifice was? Uh, They ask him that sort of question a lot through the movie, right? Uh, You know what you did? Do you know who you hurt? Do you know what you lost? And he never seems to know. And so this seems like kind of a tour through mob movies. Yeah, kind of, kind of. Uh, good mob movies never really full throatedly endorse the lifestyle that they're depicting. Um, well, maybe not never, um, but but they tend to have at least some dimension of critical aspects. So it's not like all the other ones are like, hey, you know who was happy? Scarface. <laughs> he had it. Yeah, but he had it that's down, not. But right? that's not
0: the point, is it, Pete? Right, like you know who was awesome? Scarface. Right, like that's the point. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the point. And this is sort of like, hey, they also kind of they kind of were awesome, but they also kind of weren't awesome. And, and there's a lot of interrogation of all of that that's going on in the experience of watching this movie, at least for me.
2: Mark, so anti, that, that's how I would... Yeah, direct.
1: anti-mob movie, Mark?
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with everything that, that uh, I was about to say that Tony said. Everybody, Tony, everybody's <laughs> name is Tony. I agree with everything that Pete said. Um, and we'll expand on it a little bit. I think something that's going on here is that Scorsese like made... His uh, famous mob movie, Goodfellas, um, and then saw how um, it was kind of misinterpreted uh, over the years uh, along the lines of Scarface, right? And, and, and the movies like that um, you know, glorified, overly glorified this uh, particular lifestyle. and um, And then this is his sort of correction for this. As an old man, right, he's making a movie about old men and their regrets, as opposed to when he was young, he made a movie about young men and all their vitality, and their power, and their strength. And sure, there was a lot of, you know, there was the good uh, that, that came with that of sort of the kinetic energy that exploded across uh, the, the movie screen, but there was, of course, all the bad, the destruction that they wreaked, and all the pain that they caused. Um, people, it seems like, kind of latched onto the former, and, and not so much the latter, and so now what we're left with is this um, elegiac, contemplative, morose, three-and-a-half-hour-long meditation on death. Right. That is my interpretation of what, what this movie's about.
1: You could also interpret it as not really being about the mob at all. And I think there's a couple of different ways in which you can interpret this as not being about the mob at all. But also one of them is that the eponymous Irishman is not, in fact, Ed Sheeran, the Robert De Niro character. What's his name? Something Sheeran? Frank, Frank, Frank Sheeran. Frank Sheeran. It's a, it's a completely different I'm going to take you and put you – I'm going I'm to keep you in the pocket of my ripped jeans, right? Like, uh, no, it's – it's. Um,
0: Though Ed, uh, Ed Sheeran uh, has also killed a number of people uh, with the sound of his voice.
1: <laughs> Killing them softly with his soulful songs, right? Um, I may refer to him as Ed Sheeran throughout the week. He is supposed to be a real person, Right. Um, And we can talk a little bit about that real person and what that real person did to inspire this movie or didn't do, perhaps one of the things that this is, as I said, is it's Forrest Gumpy. It's a it's a review of the second half of the 20th century and the eponymous Irishman might not really be Ed Sheeran. It might not be Robert De Niro's mobster Frank Sheeran, but might be John F. Kennedy, like at least for the first two and a half hours of this movie. You can see the movie as kind of about the invisible presence of John F. Kennedy in American culture and and kind of uh, a sort of alternative. You could see this as sort of a companion movie to Oliver Stone's JFK, right, where uh, where because it does present like um it certainly has a theory about the Kennedy assassination. It it is a movie that is about validating uncritically conspiracy theories to an extent, well, right? Like this is fascinating. Um,
2: before you start really start to go into the uh, rabbit hole, Pete, and I really yeah. am excited to hear what you have to say about this. Just very briefly, for anyone who hasn't yeah. seen this movie, it's primarily about the uh, killing of Jimmy Hoffa, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but Pete, now you're saying it's really it's at least part and parcel about the killing of John F. Kennedy. So tell me more about that.
1: Well, I mean, so here's how I always understood it. And you guys can tell me whether this is something that I thought everybody knew, sort of like how I thought everybody had seen Highlander or how everybody had seen Time Cop. Or this is just some strange thing I picked up along the way, maybe by virtue of growing up in New Jersey. So my understanding is that the sort of chain of relationships that uh, that that leads to That leads to a lot of the conspiracy theories around the JFK assassination is that Lee Harvey Oswald kills JFK, and then Jack Ruby kills Lee Harvey Oswald. And then according to the theory, Jimmy Hoffa is responsible for the death of Jack Ruby in some way, and then Jimmy Hoffa disappears, and this happens over like a 12-year period. Uh, Although most of it is very front loaded. And so that was how. when I was like a teenager, that was my kind of understanding of like what happened in the JFK assassination, right? Is that there's like, you don't know what really happened because there was a series of guys who all killed the guy who knew what was going on. Um, And certainly, as Ed Sheeran points out at the beginning of the movie, I really got to stop saying it because it doesn't it doesn't recall the character. As Frank Sheeran points out in the beginning of the movie, the main thing that you might know about Jimmy Hoffa having not been familiar with the labor movement in the 60s, just as a matter of course, having not been alive then, is that he vanished. Uh, In New Jersey, of course, there's a theory that he's buried at Giant Stadium, right? Um, But if you kind of walk it backwards, the Kennedy assassination happens maybe, what, about a third of the way through this movie? And the movie is very concerned with kind of uh, the idea of, I'm the one who put you there. Right. And this is an idea that shows up in a lot of Scorsese movies and a lot of movies that are similar and influenced by Scorsese. This idea that like and we've talked it's sort of an inverse of some of the ideas we've talked about on overthinking it with regards to Westerns uh, where. You know, society in terms of domestic relationships and the kind of safety and civility that is possible in a a kind of civil society where people have rights and respect for each other and are able to enlarge those rights over time can't exist without a kind of outside of the society actor, the sort of Jack Nicholson, you know, we live in a society that has walls, and so those walls need to be guarded with men with guns, right? This idea that, like, there are people on the outside who do violence in order to sort of bring about the reality of the people on the inside, and this is a major theme of Western cinema. In Mafia stuff, and in these particular kinds of Mafia movies, the violence is on the inside, right? Like, the, the call is coming from inside the house, <laughs> and uh, and and the uh, the people like John F. Kennedy uh, who represent to people this hope, right, and this um, this sense of kind of progress and this idea that people are improvable and this is that the world is improvable and youth can overcome age and kind of f- fresh belief can overcome old conservatism and, and kind of zeal is a weapon against the past. Uh, are put in the position to preach this gospel by extraordinarily cynical, violent men who operate in the shadows uh, and who make demands of the so-called progressives, right? And and this is the, um, I mean, you see this in *A Few Good Men*, and you see this in in um, in this movie, of course. But I'm trying to think of like other movies that are like this. Uh, I mean, you know, any any movie where the mobster thinks that they can get out but can't because they've they've incurred a debt, right, uh, that they, they can't get out of. And so in this case, the idea is that, John, if the, the movie makes the the case, right? And let let us just say from the get-go, we are not going to assume that anything that actually is discussed in this movie actually happened. As far as I'm concerned, you know, like like Watergate, did that really happen? I mean, they talk about it in The Irishman, so maybe it didn't, because uh, this movie has a lot of fabrication in it. But the proposal is that Ken, the Kennedy was put in office and installed in office as this sort of golden boy as a as part of the relationship between his father and the Italian mafia. And they even dramatized uh, voter fraud to help put Kennedy into office, right? And then the idea then is that Kennedy was supposed to invade Cuba to restore the property of mobsters whose hotels and casinos had been seized by the Castro regime. And when he didn't, then uh, the mafia had him whacked, right, in, in retaliation.
2: Yeah, um, in addition to that, because uh, his, uh, JFK's brother, Robert Kennedy, as the attorney general, was uh, trying to crack down on organized crime
1: right right the idea being that there is there's become there's barrier has raised between old man kennedy who is supposed to be taking care of his kids and robert kennedy who is this prep school kid who doesn't understand how things work right and that john john f kennedy who's between the two of them has has given robert kennedy this position of authority which he's using to undermine the people who installed his brother and it's a characteristic of the characters in the movie that they don't understand any other way of looking at the situation like like it's not necessary it's not necessary for them to express their interests to only see it this way right like like they could say i see what robert kennedy is doing he's just naive or i see what robert kennedy is doing and i appreciate that you know he's a kid with a conscience but like i had a conscience once and i had to give it up right there's like a world where no 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 they can't comprehend the idea Right. That they that this guy could answer their favors with the level of ingratitude of daring to prosecute the mafia for its crimes. Right. Um, And so the movie is kind of a spiraling series of retaliations for perceived slights and for people failing to live up to obligations that are mostly unspoken and like not really entirely codified ever to a place where you know sort of the law can be fully uh fully pointed to and say like you know oh yeah no that person actually definitely did what was wrong like i think it's another theme in this movie that since all of the mafia characters are all imitating characters from mafia movies they all speak in euphemisms and so none of them ever really know what's being said (laughs) like they get it but like they sort of don't get it and there's a lot of failures in communication which is a kind of uh interrogation of some of the ways that it works in past movies um and in that way, they sort of don't understand themselves, but it's sort of about the uh, the joy of coming into the level of prosperity in the 60s that many uh, working class Americans did because of the economic boom of the time and the optimism of some of the cultural movements, but from the perspective of a kind of unrepentant thug and killer. Um, Who who thinks he's doing everything for his family while he is driving his family into the ground? Right, a guy who's like, well, I'm doing this, you know, I I want, I'm doing this for for you guys and to protect you guys from the world. But meanwhile, there's another part where he's like, there's a part in every story where a guy leaves his wife, and that's this is that part, right? (laughs) It's sort of like, uh, I mean, I'm I'm rambling a little bit here because there's just so much happening in this gigantic movie. But the long and the short of it is that you're taking the narrative of the latter of the Pax Americana. And you're kind of turning it into a Pax Italiano, right, where, like, the conflict that, that, you know, America, the United States has not engaged in with Russia on a large scale is um, not so much a period of detente as a frantic, you know, behind the scenes machination, right, where, uh, where powerful, violent figures are waging private wars in the shadows, Uh, and, and that this is sort of not a particularly like exciting kind of thing, right? This isn't like Assassin's Creed. This is just sort of like, it's all about, it's all about like debts. It's all about like bonds and, and loans and kind of pension obligations and like, and and people owing, it's basically all people owing each other favors and owing each other money. And, and that this is sort of enough to tear apart Uh, that kind of moment of prosperity that people were seeing in the 60s, which is, um, and and into the 70s, but which is collapses, right? Which is revisited in a variety of mob movies that are mostly about you know the creation of las vegas as this as this uh ozymandias style edifice that's going to crumble from the inadequacies of its grand masters to master time and hubris right
0: well and now right now uh uh wall street has fallen not wall street the the uh las vegas has fallen to you know sort of multinational corporations and sort of borderless borderless capital which was the
1: real mafia all along am i right Guys well, one of the things that the movie puts forward is that you know organized labor's enemies are big business and the government, and organized labor's uneasy ally is the mob <laughs> right? well yeah then, i mean
0: so the thing the thing well okay, so a couple of things yeah, so one i yeah. think like one intellectual i i think that the the um I've talked about the, cow- uh, the kind of cowboy figure a lot on the on this podcast the idea of a of a you know f- violent a specialist in violence on whom society depends but who is necessarily excluded um from society by the very things he does to protect it I I feel like the mob is a special case because they are um they, they are, they actually live, you know, they have like families, they go to church, they live, like there is this whole, uh, uh, kayfabe of like legitimate, um legitimate businessmen you know the the what's the uh the joke on the simpsons the legitimate businessmen's association is like fat tony and the the mob or something the the um or what's the the you know the one i mean the mob, the mob character on on yeah, the, fat tony is the oh it's yeah. fat tony also yeah. okay i got him confused with the actual fat tony who is in uh who is in this film so the the right it's it's a uh, it's related to but distinct from the cowboy thing and i think the right the right rubric for understanding it is something that overthinker Ryan Cheeley once once explained to me as the difference between roving banditry and stationary banditry. Um, roving banditry is is what you imagine. It's, you know, sort of someone going around, like a highwayman, you know, someone going around and, like, holding people up. Stationary banditry is a, a sort of extra-legal, extra-state um, organization that comes to assume some of the functions of a state by being Settled and by being predictable, and a lot of the—I mean—a lot of the rationalizations, a lot of the kind of in the the kind of first act of mob movies when they're saying, "Hey, it may look like we're a bunch of bad guys, but in reality, we were good fellas," you know, the the like during that. Part of the of the of the uh, discourse salud the um, like uh, one of the justifications is that like look people are going to frequent prostitutes right people are going to go to strip clubs people are going to get alcohol when they shouldn't be uh, getting alcohol people are going to – you know what I mean there is there it's is a,
2: a, it's a dangerous world and the, you need protection. From all the danger up there.
0: Well, sort of. I mean, and like detection. beyond uh, beyond sort of extortion. I'm I'm thinking of like the the uh, the role in like gray market or kind of black market, fully illegal, um, you know, enterprises, and the role as a kind of de facto regulatory body uh, within that, um, you know, uh, within that milieu, and that's like uh, it's sort of what. You know, that's sort of, that's sort of what this is. And like, uh, one of the claims, I mean, one of the claims that's made in this movie is that like, you know, uh, the mob was supplying arms to go, uh, invade Cuba or like the mob was, you know, do, doing all the, the apparently this, the Ed Sheeran's book, um, just, just is full of soft crooning no uh what's what's his actual name frank sharon um yeah yeah. Yeah. his 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 book is full of a lot of outlandish claims of of actually having like done errands done transportation or things for the um uh for the government for the for the actual united states government like
1: personally handing a suitcase of a half million dollars to like richard nixon like stuff like that that, exactly that that yeah, yeah that level
0: of stuff and it's a little bit like you know um I i think one of the claims that's often made is that like well you know the the kennedys were just as much of a mob family as as the bufalinos or or uh or whatever but like it it is different because one is, one is sort of done in the light and one is, is done as a species of, um, as a species of banditry. You know, the other thing I wanted to say about this, when, when you're talking about like debts and loyalty, um, is that it's also like one of the ways it's, it's, um, one of the ways it's framed in this movie is as a, as a kind of, competition of, of patrimony, right? Of like, who do you belong to? Who is your, uh, who is your daddy? And what does he do? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. And that, um, that like at the, what is it called? The testimonial dinner, the award, the award banquet where, um, where Sheeran is getting the, uh, is getting decorated and recognized by the union, right? Like in that scene, uh, Jimmy Hoffa says to him like You're mine, you're mine, you're my guy You're my brother, you're my guy And, and sort of you're my son, right? Um, and, uh, who's, and And it leads the call and response Of the, the chant with the audience Whose side are you on? Your side Whose side are you on? Your side You know um, And so that's, that's sort of one claim And in the, uh, the other side The competing claim Is Joe Pesci giving him the ring you know, and Harvey Keitel has a ring, Joe Pesci has a ring, like, like, my father carried this watch in his ass, and I carried this watch in my ass, <laughs> and now, uh, just to get completely off the wall with the references, you know, now it's now it's passing down to you. And that's like, um, you know, that's the other claim, and, and ultimately, the sort of the successful claim of... Um, of patrimony and, and sort of wonder, you gotta wonder why the kind of the professional association, the mob association, uh, trumps the, the try, I should say triumphs over the, um, the uh class association, right? With uh you know, with um Chiron being a, a truck driver and Al Pacino being like the king of the truck drivers and you know, not a prep school boy like the like the Kennedys, not the the sort of son of a rich boy, rich man. Um that like uh and and so to a certain extent it's it is a it is a kind of perverse uh Henry the Fourth part two. Right? Where he has to choose between the uh, he has to choose between the good and the bad father he chooses the the royalty he chooses his his destiny um, and says uh, says to uh, uh, it's, it's it's amazing how right when he's shooting Jimmy Hoffa in the head spoiler alerts he says I know thee not old man fall to thy prayers exactly the words that King Henry v says to Falstaff in that last scene of course that's a lie but you know the 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 idea is that like uh it 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 could be he repudiates the bad father and he he embraces the good father and you know rather than becoming king right he actually happens to live at a time when the whole the whole thing is is crumbling you know the whole kind of post post 50s uh uneasy you know sort of alliance um, in a time of social upheaval, uh, it's, it's thirteen ways of looking at a mob movie, right? Like in in a uh, in in a landscape, in a in a still landscape, the only thing moving is the blackbird. Well, in a, in a time of upheaval, the only thing not moving is the mafia, and. uh you know, I don't know. Then, then the the sort of the wheel turned. The society kind of developed again, went into its its next iteration, and the the role of the 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 role of that style of organized crime was was diminished uh, considerably. I mean, did you notice how many of those guys got killed in? 79 or 80 or like the, the you know the late 70s and early 80s kind mm-hmm. of as we were you know as we were children we were sort of you, the three of us were born into this new era this sort of post-mob era where we kind of look back at, at it nostalgically not for the mafia um specifically but maybe a little more for you know the the america that it seemed to represent
1: right it's really interesting. And then and so there's all of this, right, that you've talked about with regards to organized crime and what might cause organized crime to be present in a community such as kind of the lapse of the regular, you know, the sort of um, the nominal authority, the sort of if you think that there should be a legitimate. If there is an authority that generally calls itself legitimate without too much dispute. Right. And that authority chooses not to exercise its responsibility in a given area then you can predictably see an authority like an organized crime syndicate step into that role, right? And this idea that you can't really just live orderlessly um, on top of all these other ideas of the kind of ebb and flow of the Cosa Nostra. But it's also worth pointing out that, like, mob movies and the layer of the movie over the mob, right, is, is part of this as well, which I think you've been addressing also. Um, I mean, I've, I I guess— one thing I want to touch on before it goes too long is this weird relationship with the uh, the limitations of who's being depicted in the movie, and the movie being very self conscious about who it's depicting. Am I making too big a leap of what you were talking about, Matt? Before not giving enough air before moving on to this particular topic? No, I think I, I think um, this is a great place to go next. Okay, so so consider right that. This is a movie. There's this is a movie where several things happen that might be flying under the radar a little bit. Um, Jimmy Hoffa is not Italian, <laughs> right? Like that's that's uh, that's that's something that's important to know, <laughs> I believe, right? Um, Jimmy Jimmy Hoffa. I'm even looking it up. Um, I think Jimmy a Hoffa. Yeah, he's German, Polish. He's he's from Pennsylvania. He's part Irish. He's part German. Right. But he's not Italian, despite the fact that he's played. This is a movie where, like, two Italian guys are playing two not Italian guys. And it's really important that their characters are not Italian for the sake of the movie, though it kind of gets missed. Uh, A little bit uh, because it's called The Irishman and it's being played half by Robert De Niro and half by a Tupac hologram. Although we'll address that later. Right. Um, This sort of mask of uh, of PS1 that's happening in this movie sometimes. But Jimmy Huff is not Italian and he's prejudiced against Italians, um, which is, again, a thing that is easy for contemporary society to forget because so much in assimilation and so much in kind of. um, the sort of expansion of whiteness over the 20th century from where it used to be to, you know, where it is now. Uh, In some cases expanding, some cases contracting, uh, right? And certain people who might have been white in the 60s are not white anymore. Certain people who weren't white in the 40s are now considered white and so on and so forth. Um, But Jimmy Hoffa was pretty prejudiced against Italians in this movie. And and at one point he says to one of his uh, associates in prison, you know, he talks about you people, right? You people wanting your money. Um, And and later he follows it up by calling him a WAP uh, and and, uh, you know, throwing other anti-Italian slurs at him, which we can say now without much fear of hurting anybody's feelings because all of these changes have happened. Right. But um, but. So this is what this is one of the things that – this is a movie in which a gangster is offended, right? A gangster in a gangster movie, which is following up on, you know, The Godfather, Goodfellas, A Bronx Tale, Casino, right? All these sort of lionizing and impugning kind of uh, sublime movies about this sort of fictional notion of Italian-Americans uh, as, as kind of hardened criminals, right? He is offended at being accused of being a gangster in a gangster movie by virtue of his ethnicity, Right um and this is also a movie where it depicts the assassination of the of joe colombo who is a crime boss but who is also the leader of an organization that at the time was protesting the rise of specifically this kind of movie and i kind of want to hit on this like a little bit more detail because the movie treats it really interestingly and this this might be mark you were kind of talking about uh how scorsese sees cinema as art so this might be also a place to hook into that discussion down the road a little bit but You know, in this movie, you see the Kennedy assassination, Watergate, the Bay of Pigs, right? Like, uh, you know, you see all of these events and they're explained. You know, there's there's people on TV that tell you what happens. There's the even all of the mobsters. You get the little can't hardly wait style titles in front of them telling you what happened to them after the events of the movie, although they happen throughout rather than just at the end. And so and the they, all not- they're, they're,
0: all and they all die It's all that they die, except for, except for one yeah. who is, you know, notable, you know, it's one, it's the, the, uh, exception that proves the rule, right?
1: Well, liked by all, right who died of natural causes. I yeah. like that guy. <laughs> Everyone liked him, so he did okay. He died so side
2: note, I'm a little surprised that Robert Kennedy didn't get one of those title cards.
1: Yeah, but they, they, still they too really soon? pulled the punts with Robert Kennedy. Right, yeah. yeah. They sort of set it up and then didn't cash it out, yeah. which, I mean, leads yeah. me to think, and given that the movie was only three and a half hours long, I don't know why they didn't also pursue that plot line. They <laughs> totally could <good> <laughs> um, Well, one thing they don't address at all is black people, right? And that's also where this, in, this part of the movie intersects with that in a self-conscious way. Um, which is that, you know, in in the 70s, there's an, a high profile assassination that happens uh, or shooting, you should say, because you can't necessarily say with confidence is assassination. Nobody knows who's really responsible for it, uh, and although they know the person who did it. They don't know who was calling the shots or why this guy did it because he was just a guy that anybody could have paid to do it. Um, but he was a, a mobster who was also campaigning against mafia movies. He thought that the the Godfather was going to introduce negative stereotypes about uh, Italian Americans, and the you know anti the JDL right, which is a sort of anti anti Semitic military you know militant group, uh, not military group, but militant group uh, was allied with him. This sort of uh, Italian you know Italian American League or wherever he's calling this organization there's a campaign to stop the negative portrayal of of italians in cinema the guy running it who happens to be also in the mob is shot right um and then there is a there is a he's shot by a black man the black man is instantly killed and then a guy that the other mobsters know as somebody who associates with black people is killed in retaliation under the assumption that because he's the one who's friends with black people, he's the one who ordered the the hit, right? And, and, and it's sort of like, and it's. Just, I mean, looking this up sort of outside the context of the movie. The interesting thing about it is that the details of this assassination is like the only historical event in the movie that isn't discussed or explained. It's instead depicted in this collage, right? This sort of like dreamlike series of super up-close, super slow-motion shots that are kind of metaphorically about r- race in America, where you have like the Italians who are kind of exultant on the platform as the many, many Italian arms are pulling down the one black arm that's trying to rise up right it's this sort of like um pulling up the ladder scene where this kind of and it's in the 60s right because it's it's actually in the early 70s right so it's the it's the sort of contemporaneous with stress around the civil rights movement and and, and kind of integration and kind of race riots and also like white flight and and the kind of uh, you know the, the long path to the warriors that we talked about in our madman recaps to this sort of pervasive fear of the black city by white people and then there's this sort of moment this sort of dreamlike moment where the killing of Joe Colombo is depicted but it's not explained why this guy was important it's just every character in the movie understands that he's important because there's the Colombo crime family right? like which it, I don't think it wasn't called that at the time I think it was named after him um, although you can you can uh, figure that out right by reading different accounts and different people might say different things um, but if you're familiar with the Colombo crime family at all this was the guy who was very instrumental in it kind of being a big player in New York and having the name it has now and he's killed. So it's interesting to see that the movie does addresses, as if you already know, the idea that there's a protest movement against this kind of movie that you're currently watching, and that a guy— who is in favor of it was also a committer of the sort of grievous sins that you're currently watching right and it's also something that the movie is going to very deliberately not tell you about right at the same time as there's a character in the movie who is kind of offended by virtue of his ethnicity at being in this movie right like like there there are these little moments where somebody's getting handed an espresso and they actually really come out and hit it home at the end of the movie where Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro are in the nursing home, and they're given the the traditional—they get the traditional Italian bread and this sharp grape juice that's supposed to be a facsimile for wine for them. Hmm. And they're trying to eat in the tradition of their, their culture, and they can't, right, because life has been so hard on them. And it's really because they've aged so much. Yeah. But there's this really sad moment, right?
2: Three, three important corrections. They're not in a nursing home. I believe they are in prison.
1: <laughs> oh, that's right. They're in nursing yeah. prison. Yeah. Right? In- yeah. <laughs>
2: um, so let, let me try to uh, give, offer sort of an explanation as to why this important detail is omitted. Yeah. Um, I, I think I disagree with you, Pete, that it sort of assumes that you have this knowledge. Um, okay. I think that it very intentionally excludes it, like draws a dotted line around the whole Godfather aspect of it. Um in the same way that, like, uh, I think I wrote an article in overthinking a very long time ago, why nobody mentions the movie Total Recall in the movie Inception. <laughs> because uh, it, it's, like, trying to keep out of bounds explicit mentions of other, God, of, other sorry, Godfather, of other Godfather movies, of other Mafia movies, so that it can make all those references implicitly and do so sort of on a consistent basis, right? I think there is a very specific Godfather reference that ends this movie, Um. It, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll just spoil it for, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, remember in the, in the Godfather, um, the door uh, closes on Kate as uh, the Godfather, as Michael Corleone is having a mafia meeting, important mafia meeting uh, on the other side of the door, essentially saying like, uh, you know, Michael Corleone has left um, his normal life behind, and there is a sort of. Uh, uh, it, impenetrable barrier between the two of them Um, in this at the end of uh, the I think it's the very end of the Irishman um, uh, the um, the Irishman uh, Frank uh, intentionally asked for the door to be left open a crack in order to symbolize sort of hope of some sort of redemption that uh, has constantly eluded him, through the entire movie in order, had, to, in order to
0: ex- create a really good last shot of the movie where you're sort of peering at him <laughs> through a half-open door <laughs> with the wall yeah. and the kind of the like the backlighting, the kind of recessed lighting behind the handrail, the nightlight uh, in the nursing home. I mean, it was very, it was very, very beautiful. Very, I mean, really beautiful movie.
2: Anyway, right. So, so this movie assumes that you have seen The Godfather. I think that's fair to say, and that you make oh, yeah. that's your mind you know does that work and it gives you that satisfaction. I think all that is cheapened if you make the references to the Godfather explicit in this movie and that sort of scrambles uh, up like the the dotted line uh, that's drawn around all the things that happen here as being like in the movie and everything else being outside of the movie, so that's my explanation for it.
1: Hmm. I, I mean let's let's go in. I think that you're making a really good point and to expand on it. I think there are many references to specific movies and a bunch of Godfather references in this movie. And I guess what I was what I was saying to kind of refine it a little bit is that this is a movie that knows that when watching it, it seems apparent that the experience of Italian-Americans who are not in the mafia is being more or less completely ignored. Right. Even to the point where it's like his own kids can't like you have no idea what our life was like. You don't know anything about our experience. Right. Because all you cared about, all you cared about and talked about was the mafia. And we were terrified to tell you what was happening because of the horrible things that you would do. And I think that there is there is a degree to which this movie is kind of um, calling itself to account slightly for the way in which these mafia movies have only really selectively represented the life of this immigrant population and in a rather beastly sort of way, right? In a very insulting and nasty sort of way that hasn't been good for the people involved either. But but to, to put it another way, here's some of the other Godfather references in the movie, right? When when Frank Sheeran goes into Umberto's Clams to kill uh, Joe Gallo, right? Uh, is that his name, Joe Gallo? Uh, the guy who they think killed Col- or ordered the hit on Columbo, Um, He talks about how you kill somebody in a restaurant and the way that you do it is you go into the bathroom and then you come out of the bathroom and you kill the guy right because at that point you know you've gone to the bathroom you've calmed down and you're able to leave and he delivers this as a mafia movie-esque monologue this is of course recalls the scene from the first godfather movie where michael corleone commits his first murder right by going into the bathroom getting the gun in the bathroom and walking out and shooting the guy and he kind of botches it a little bit right like he's supposed to drop the gun and doesn't or something like that um and so he tells you yeah this is how it's supposed to happen and then he goes into the the building and he doesn't go in the bathroom he just like he starts to go bathroom is like oh screw it he starts shooting a crowded group of people right which is sort of this idea of like here's the cool mafia way that you murder people and it's like oh, i'm a 50 year old man shooting a bunch of innocent bystanders right like it's uh it's this idea of like trying to setting up the mafia movie as this simulacrum uh, of reality and then trying to yank reality toward the mafia movie and finding instead a, a rather sad and miserable sort of reality that you've created. Another one is the scene where, uh, and I will say, I guess just shout out to Louis conselmi uh who played uh, uh, the, the Garoter, right? What's his name? Bugs or Scugs or something. The character's name in this movie. Yeah. The, the guy the, who the, uh, he's a, he's a friend of ours. Yeah, <laughs> who played, and he looks like the guy from Rushmore. Uh, he and I did theater together in college. I was very proud that when I was a freshman and he was a senior, I got to do some shows with him. Uh, hes I absolutely was so overjoyed to see him in this movie, uh, and he's such a, a, a very captivating performer, uh, and so I thought he struck a very compelling and interesting sort of weird character in this movie with that thick thick glasses, mafiosi, horrible person, right, who like uh, terribly violent and, and unhinged and got to do a scene with... Uh, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, and Todd from Breaking Bad. Um, I don't know. Anyway, shout out to Louis Cinsalmi. uh Great job in this movie. Um, but also, he gets shot on the courthouse steps, right, which is a recollection of the end of The Godfather, where, you know, the five families, they all get their heads killed, right, uh, in retaliation for the killings that have been happening against the Corleone, like the killing of, that have been happening course, over the course of the movie. And this idea, I think there's one who gets shot on the courthouse steps. Yeah, um, for sure. And of course, then there's a monologue where it's like, "Oh, it was for no reason." <laughs> like, like he was, and they say oh, that yeah, it was like, "Oh yeah, he he had." So what had happened is like he reports to this one guy who reports to somebody who isn't Joe Pesci, and so he told his boss that he was getting called into the Justice Department to uh, to talk about some sort of r- unrelated thing, like he was getting shaken down for something or he had to deal with some sort of court thing. And normally you would tell people, and because Joe Pesci didn't hear about it, because he told the wrong middle manager, he assumed the guy was snitching right. and murdered him. And Someone you get forgot this, the like
2: copy yeah. the right person on an email. You guys know how that yeah, not work.
1: Exactly, right? exactly. It's like you copied the wrong guy in the email, and so you got murdered. And he calls it sort of like that was a wrong hit or something like that. A bad hit. Yeah, a bad it's, hit.
0: I mean, right? I wonder if they're going to have a retrospective meeting, right, where it's like, okay, what what should we do different next time? Like, what were the what were the goods, the bads, and the and the maybe next times for this how for are this are we project?
1: In retention with our <laughs> murder our employees policy right so there's a correction there is a,
2: a scene of him going into the court uh courthouse that is evocative of the godfather but he's actually murdered right as he's coming out oh, yeah. of the quote-unquote social club right that's a good point so, it
1: gets, he gets killed in front of the social but, club sorry him going into the place is the one that's reminiscent of the godfather yeah the,
2: the broader point though is that this movie is the, the irishman is actively undermining Um, Scenes like that in The Godfather and like in this specific way, right? Um, If you haven't seen The Godfather in a while, um, just know that like uh, all these murders at the end, it's this uh, orgy of violence and music and pomposity and grandiosity, right? There's this like Bach organ cue happening and people are getting blown away in quick succession. And it's all like horrible yet amazing to watch. In the Irishman, none of that applies. The kills are all quick and brutal, and without any sort of ceremony or pop and circumstance in particular when Hoffa uh, when, when the Irishman kills Hoffa at the end right it's just like they go into the house there 's like a beat there's no like looks there's no speech there's no music there's just pop, pop, and the house yeah. is painted
1: yeah and i mean it's like even even the 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 broad you could interpret it as a broad Godfather three reference the you know second the third quarter of this movie where al pacino is convinced right jimmy hoffa is convinced that when he gets out of prison the thing that everybody wants him to do and that he really needs to do is like resume the presidency of the union which to me feels a little bit like the like every time i get out they pull me back in right like i'm 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 the boss i have to be the boss don't you understand right like um and it's like no actually you're a 60 year old man who just got out of jail and maybe you're not the person who should be running a large company or union or organization right like like you're not in charge anymore, you know. Deal with it. But that you that that sort of mafia movie mentality of like this is mine, and and also like the sort of capos are these mystical figures who are like irreplaceably competent, the true bosses, right? It, it felt like in that same way that the murders, the way the murders are done in a sort of unceremonious, anticlimactic, uh, sad way, right, with regrettable circumstances is is similar to the way that the leadership is kind of uh, undermined in its mystery by it being you know kind of like cheap and old and sad like like what about that scene where Joe Pesci is talking to the guy in like the glass shop or the jewelry store and he's like he's like hundreds of miles away from home he's a gangster from Scranton right and he's walking into this place in Ohio and he's like people are telling me that your son is misbehaving himself And if and if that continues to happen, people aren't going to shop at this store anymore. And then that's going to hurt me. So get your son under control. And I'm sitting there being like. What kind of miserable man is this guy, right, that he has to go to this podunk crappy store in, like, Toledo, right, and, like, lecture this, you know, old man about his grown son, right? And they walk out of that place. This isn't Fifth Avenue, right? Like, we're not having a breakfast at Tiffany's here, right? Like, the the idea that, like, you know, I'm going to be negatively impacted unless your son behaves himself – you talked, Matt, about the I'm your daddy, right? I'm your father, right? Um, that the presumption that Joe Pesci's character has that his parental guidance is like relevant, right? Or useful. I mean, yes, the guy says sure because he's afraid of him. And then he starts berating his son when the mobsters leave the, the, the building. But it seems pretty, to say the least, down market for a mafia movie, right? Like this just random spot. Um, well, yeah, because you yeah. should have you should have guys to do that for you, right? Like this yeah. is this particular
0: type of intimidation is below his pay grade, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. and and also, also, I mean, it's like it, it is sort of it does give the lie to the like because he's not not intimidating at all, you know. There's no real threat of violence, right? Like, I think I could take seventy year old Joe Pesci. I don't know. He he's scrappy. He seems scrappy. <laughs> he's been through a I lot. Mean, but he's, like, he's had
1: his head burned. He's had, his, you know, <laughs> been electrocuted. Stepped, I mean, stepped a,
0: yeah, awful. stepped across Christmas ornaments. He's got a chamberlain's heart in his chest for sure. <laughs> um, the uh, you know, but like wh- there's no. It either is like the mystique. It I I think one of the things we're we're meant to take away from that is how how important the sort of the the mystique was, right? Like that, you know, because that in in that, I guess, you know, you could come back and burn the burn the shop down. I mean, I, I took the people aren't going to shop here anymore as like, I'm going to burn your shop down or I'm going to hurt you. or like something like that. Like, uh, you know, not, not like, you know, if your son continues to be an asshole, the invisible hand of the market, will, <laughs> you know,
1: don't you understand that women are 70% of your shoppers. And if your son keeps harassing them, you're not going to be able to retain the customers you have, let alone get new ones. Right. Yeah. Like No, exactly. that's not, no, that's that's not,
0: not what, <laughs> it. no, it's like, uh, Hey, your jewelry shop is looking awfully flammable here. Right? Uh, like, why? <laughs> Nothing here is flammable. It's all glass and stone. <laughs> it's, no, you're yeah, no. A, sorry, <laughs> I've, perhaps I haven't made myself clear. <laughs> um, so yeah that that like how uh but the 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 mismatch between the the actual level of of physical intimidation that this you know uh dues pay, paying ARP member uh brings to bear um on this this uh shop owner in Dayton in Dayton Ohio is all out of whack with the kind of the deference that he's afforded uh and the sense of you know the sense of threat that other people um other people perceive from him you know they 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 become sort of they become sort of movie stars uh in in a way but like but not you know not overexposed and actually one of gallo's um sort of one of the things that they that they can't believe like can you believe this guy he's hanging out with celebrities he's getting his face known you know he's not uh keeping a low profile he's not playing it cool he's sort of living large and that's like you know that's sort of against uh uh, against the code or at least the kind of the instinct of self-preservation um that these guys have or or are supposed to have um you know the the one the one uh beautiful killing is Columbo, is the columbus circle mm-hmm. right. um thing which is shot in slow motion and has what must be a cgi globule of blood uh in slow motion suspended in the air after he is uh, after he's shot the you know this one like kind of gelatinous blob that like hovers, you know, in in beautiful fashion, um, in the air. And it, you know, I, I sort of wonder, sort of wonder why that one in a, in a movie that is extraordinarily like, have you, (laughs) did you notice how perfunctory all the explosions were? Like, uh, (laughs) like two, two things about the explosions, right? Because that should be, it should be the, the, it should be like terrifying and quasi orgasmic when a, when a mobster's car is blown up, you know, that, that like, it's a kind of apotheosis and here it's, it's done with voiceover narration where it's like, so I blew up the thing. Here is the video of us blowing up the thing. The thing is going to blow up in five, four, three to completely taking out of it, oh, all the suspense.
2: One, yeah, and in one important instance, uh, when he blows up the uh, the competing laundry place, we don't even get to see that. No yeah. He goes right up to it. You know, he's got the trunk full of, uh, of gasoline and candy. Well, he, he did not
1: actually
0: yeah, go there. He right? didn't go full of that. He didn't go out through with that one because Ray Romano came to grab him. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, and, sorry. Sorry and I take to that back. to take him to talk to Harvey Keitel. And the wolf told him, you know that that uh, you know the the owner of that business or friends of ours, or that he, in fact, he himself has an interest in that uh, in that particular one. So the the yeah. So the the like um, and like the other thing I loved. I really liked uh, Hoffa's wife getting into her car and sort mm-hmm. of wondering, "Am I going to get blown up?" Right? Like, it was really good. I don't know. It was a really good moment for this particular film of like the the I guess the cost, Pete. Since you sort of brought that up before, like, what did it cost you, or the like the the toll uh, taken on on people by um uh taking taken on on people and the families of the 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 principal characters right like really kind of demythologizing um the actual uh the actual cost human cost of of you know this lifestyle and and the crime and stuff like that and a, a couple things about that and and this was the woman uh this was the woman who by the way um what, uh, you know, uh, Pacino was like, ah, "I'm the softy, and she's the tough one." And she was like, "You can take their pensions away, or you just tell them to, you know, go off themselves, or something like that." The other one uh, was Pesci's wife, was Buffalino's wife. Um, who, like, when he comes home covered in blood, is like, leave all your, you know, and she's like, she's mafia royalty, is how uh, De Niro describes her. Like, um, she's like, leave your, leave your bloody clothes down here, and I'll, I'll, uh, you know, I'll clean them off, and don't, don't, by the way, don't forget your shoes. And it's shot in this sort of sexy way, where, where this is like part of her. Uh, part of her allure and like part of their sort of marital Congress somehow where, you know, and, and then like you see him going up the stairs to the bedroom, you know, to the, to the marital bed. um, And, and she's in a nightgown and the whole, you know, the whole thing, like the, the women are supposed to be very tough. And yet the, the sort of toll, uh, the sort of toll that's taken on them. Um, either, you know, either by, you know, knowing that your family member is capable of this kind of, I say family member, your father is capable of this kind of violence or your, you know, Joe Pesci, your fake uncle is capable of this, of this kind of violence. Like, I feel like Hoffa gets off easy, like to, uh, to the daughter, to the estranged daughter, he is kind of a creepy uncle. Uh, um, um, uh, but like he, you know, he also sent a lot of, a lot of thugs to, to rough a lot of guys up. Like he, he wasn't, uh, you know, his hands weren't completely clean and in, in, uh, everything he did, like, uh, union jurisdiction was, was, uh, enforced, if not always at the point of a, a gun, at least at the, the business end of a set of brass knuckles. Right. And that, you know, um, and yet, yeah, but,
2: but Peggy and, didn't see that in front of her eyes. Right. Like that's one of like the most incredible scenes uh, early on in, in the movie, where um, where, where Sharon goes just like beats the crap out of the grocery store owner, yeah, like, and it makes a point of showing it to his daughter, and he wonders why she has a crush after all those years, man.
1: <laughs> so a, a couple of things to jump add on to what you said, Matt. Um, one. It is interesting when Hoffa's wife gets in the car to turn the key and is afraid that she's going to blow it up. On one hand, yes, it's showing the real toll that's demystifying the mafia a little bit. But on the other, she in her head watches a movie, right? I think the clip – I might be wrong about this – but I think the clip of the car exploding is from the account of the other whispers – Right. It's like this other guy named Whispers. He came to a bad end or whatever, and they show a car blowing up. That's yeah. that car. And so she she wasn't there. She didn't see that, but she heard the story. It's like she's seen the mafia movie that she's living in, and it's making her afraid. Right. There's this notion that the life that they're living in, the context of the story is informed and shaped by the movies that they think they're in. And I think that it's similar with uh with Joe Pesci and Pacino and De Niro's daughter. And for this one specifically, it reminds me of A Bronx Tale, although I think there are a bunch of movies that are like this, where there seems to be this sort of primordial psychological anxiety about the like alpha male taking your children. That seems to kind of like be feeding some of these mafia narratives. And that one, it's like Robert De Niro is the kind of blue collar, hardworking, straight shooting guy who has no money. And Chaz Palminteri is the flashy mafiosi guy who slips his son a wad of cash, similar to the wad of cash that Joe Pesci gives um gives uh robert de niro's daughter in this movie and in this movie robert de niro is like happy that the mob guy is trying to bribe his daughter and in the other movie it's like no, i'm the upstanding citizen you shouldn't be bribing my son this lifestyle is bad while at the same time we're sort of glorifying it and so there's this weird meta engagement with this idea of like wanting to wanting the father of your children to be this, like, machoistic fantasy. Or maybe you're supposed to, as the audience, place yourself in the persona of the child and think, like, oh, cool, wouldn't it be cool if my dad, rather than being boring, was a mafia guy? And, like, wouldn't that be awesome? And there's this weird psychosexual thing that's happening with all that stuff. Um, but I will also say that it's important to note that in all of this, that the whole movie is within the framing device of... Ed Sheeran telling the story from the the actual nursing home after he gets out of prison, right? Right, right. right. Um, and so, like, the idea that when Joe Pesci goes home, he has, like, romantic, sexy mafia time, right? Where it's, like, his, his, his beautiful wife with her makeup done comes down the stairs in her night robe and says that she'll wash his clothes for him, right? Or, like, you know, she was afraid because she saw in her head the clip of the car blowing up that I just told you about, right? And then that happened. Uh, and there's I don't know how much the movie is trying to hint to you that the events as they transpired in the quote unquote reality that the that she, he's referring to don't really correspond to the story that he's telling you. One thing that sticks with me about that, and you tell me how much this resonates for you, was when he has his meet cute, right, with Joe Pesci at the beginning of the movie, uh, his like mafia meet cute where he meets Buffalino. And he finds out he asks later when he meets Buffalino the second time, you know, Buffalino knows about the timing chain in his truck and he asks, you know, oh, you know, do you work on cars? Oh, yeah, he worked. And he's like, oh, I worked uh, with the Canada Dry Corporation. Like I hauled he, he says, like he carried a truck full of Canada Dry. And, of course, learning the lesson of Terminator Dark Fate, we do not go for an entire movie without somebody drinking Canada Dry. (laughs) Like, Canada Dry is a constant presence in the movie uh, because because Jimmy Hoffa, Al Pacino, uh, is always drinking Canada Dry, right? And so is the connection that... Joe, that Buffalino worked for Jimmy Hoffa as a teamster and Canada Dry is like a nickname that he has for Jimmy Hoffa? Or are we in kind of like Ed Sheeran's Phantasmagoria where like Canada Dry ginger ale just sort of exists as a thing and it kind of pops up here and pops up there and its presence is kind of a suggestion that like the events that you're seeing are kind of dreamlike, right? Like uh, that it's not quite 100% reality that you're looking at.
2: I like to think of the the latter, yeah. um, for a variety of reasons. Um, for what you just said, um, because uh, we know that um, it, it, Frank Sheeran's uh, uh, claims that he clank killed Jimmy Hoffa have uh, been scrutinized a lot and really don't have a lot of corroborating evidence. Um, but perhaps most importantly, at uh, the, the framing device, at least my interpretation of it, is that Frank Sheeran is in a retirement home and he's giving this like <laughs> Goodfellas esque narration. Mm -hmm. Um, but he's just like talking to himself, right? There's no one there else there. Yeah. That, that's how I read it. I don't know. I don't know. You guys, if you saw it the same way, like he, he's, he's basically, he's, he's old and decrepit and losing his mind.
0: Right. And it's, it, it is interesting for, uh, Oh, yeah. And maybe he's, you're saying he's sort of making sense of like things that happened in, in kind of a crazy way and like placing himself at the center, uh, at the center of the story. That's funny. That's the, the twist at the end of Tom Stoppard's travesty is where the guy who is at the center of the story turns out to be just the butler, uh, who is imagining himself into the, into the more central role, um, in the, uh, uh, in the, the, you know, um, time, the time that he was in Zurich and Dadaists and the end of World War I, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, um, the whole, uh, the whole thing is, is just sort of confabulation. That's, I mean, that's interesting. I, I, the thing that I noticed about it was that it's very out of character for him. Like it's, and, and De Niro is very, very good, uh, at this in this film of like, at, as, the you know as as the kind of the demands as the sort of emotional cost as as difficulty strikes this character uh Sharon Frank Sharon like moves towards silence, like you know when it's like there's no sense of like there's no sense of sort of explosiveness except maybe uh, doing the grosser, except, you know, you don't get a sense that he has a a temper like Joe Pesci in every other movie that, that Joe Pesci has ever been in. Not this one. Uh, by the way, he's actually like remarkably sweet. And some of the, like the fatherly stuff, um, with De Niro was sort of legit touching to me and just colors that I had not seen in a Joe Pesci performance before. I I mean, I feel like if, if someone deserves an award for this movie, it's probably him. Um, But the, the, uh, the Sheeran character, like, when it's like, you gotta kill your, you gotta kill your mentor, Jimmy Hoffa, he gets this, like, De Niro does this thing where he sort of pushes his lips together as though to, like, force himself into silence, as though to kind of, like, shut down the idea that, that, uh, you know, sound could escape uh, his lips and give him away. Contrast that with Pacino, who is like who would have been like, I gotta kill Jimmy Hoffa you know, like it would would have been, I do you know what that man means to me. You know, the the um the much more operatic uh operatic style. It's funny, I dipped into the secondary literature. There's a, not a making of, but a kind of like presentation featurette with Scorsese and the the three actors on Netflix. It's 23 minutes long and I I watched it. And... um, you know, uh, uh, Pesci is talking about doing a scene with Pacino and you can see him calculate, um, you can see him calculate in his head what to say. He says, I, you know, we went into the scene and I didn't know. I, you know how Al can, uh, get big. <laughs> 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 or, or, you know, something like, I can't remember if it's exactly that. And I didn't know if he was gonna, get big in this scene. And I, I, I thought he couldn't because I would, I would have had to kill him in that scene, you know, if he mouthed off to me in that way. And anyway, it was, it, uh, it was funny. Um, uh, Okay. Parting thoughts as we, as we close up our discussion on the Irishman,
1: Pete, anything more you want to hit? Yeah, sure. I wanted to hit two more things. I'll hit them relatively quickly. One, reinforcing the idea that there is a historical, Uh, parallel happening where you're kind of understanding history in an anecdotal or allegorical way through these individuals. And also that the narration is not necessarily fully reliable, but has some sort of dreamlike qualities, there are a number of times through the movie where you're hearing narration. You're either hearing narration about a real life event that is describing the action that you're seeing in the movie, or you're shown something from real life that fits The words that are being said, right, except that the description is intended for something else. So, for example, when you're when Robert De Niro is watching TV and hearing about the Bay of Pigs invasion, it while he's in the room while Jimmy Hoffa is targeting the jury to put pressure on them to try to get them to uh, exonerate him, right, for for uh, the thing that he's being held to account for, which I forget at the moment. The guy on TV, right, is saying, like, the ships that go along, you know, will be turned safely to shore, and the ships that won't will be da 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 And, it, and it's, it, he's describing in the mechanics of the blockade what Jimmy Huff is going to do to the jurors is the idea right and this sort of speaks to me as like okay well which of these did you really experience did you experience the cuban missile crisis and and your connection your sort of cinematic association between the cuban missile crisis and jimmy hoffa pressuring jurors is sort of like your way of kind of metabolizing the cuban missile crisis is it that you see these things together juxtaposed against each other as compelling or interesting another one is at one point um I think it's – De Niro is speaking about something some something that happens that's that's terrible, right? Uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I thought you were going to break in there. Right? No, it's he's speaking all you. about something. He's speaking about something terrible, and he says like, uh, um, you never realize anything about it except that you're in it and that it's happening. And when he says that, there's a picture of the World Trade Center that's put on the screen, right? Which is like, oh, he's describing the experience of being in 9-11. And there's sort of these little there's a bunch of these moments scattered through the movie where it's not particularly clear whether the sort of mob movie is a way of telling us about the 20th century, but telling it slant or is sort of a hint or the sort of correspondence between reality and fiction is a hint that the fiction is not reality. Right. There's like there's this. And or is it just a sort of cinematic technique of collage and association that is kind of doing something interesting by juxtaposing sound and picture? Right. And and Scorsese is primarily approaching this as an experimental artist. So so that's one dynamic of what's happening in this movie from a historical standpoint. And then the other thing that I wanted to touch on as a closing thought that we didn't really talk about is this movie as a funeral for this subgenre of movie. Right. As the sort of and specifically that being about the aging and death of Robert De Niro, Al Pacino and Joe Pesci, and particularly the symbolism of the black car, which goes through this movie, Um, that there is this there. There are big black cars all throughout this movie. And a lot of the time, the way that they're shot is that the big black car is actually stationary and it's the world that moves. And there's even a great shot where they're at the Cadillac Linen Company, where it's shot from inside the big black car. Right. And it's this idea that the big black car is kind of this thing that you're trapped inside and you look out through the window and you kind of see the world of the living and the notion that this big black car is going inexorably toward Detroit with its big circle around it, where death is going to happen. And the, the notion that, like, all these old dudes are in this car together. Right. It um, is. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of different times in which, like the black, the, the black town, a beautiful black town car. Right. But the black, town car the black chevy whatever it is um that the different people are driving is the sort of messenger of death and sometimes there's a red car and it's supposed to be about blood right or there's a green car and it's supposed to be soothing relative to the black car that you were in but just this notion that like this is a movie and w- this is this is the mob movie riding the hearse to the graveyard and and it says many times throughout the movie they talk about going to the graveyard and having to go to the grave um and this sort of idea of like cinema and the eye of the camera as the sort of eye that captures the light of the living world, this sort of eye that exists only for the moment to kind of see the world as a stage and kind of pull that light in because cinema is about light and black on, on a film on screen is the absence of light. Uh, And so there's this very powerful, I felt kind of like chilling notion, which is of course compounded by the like 20 minutes of dwelling on death that happens at the end of this movie where we watch Robert De Niro pick out his own casket. Right. Um, But that aspect of the movie is also happening in addition to the dimension of like it being a mob movie, it being an anti mob movie, it being a historical movie, it being a sort of like non faux historical movie. Right. And it also on top of all this is a meta movie about the people who are in it uh, that, by the way, has Todd from Breaking Bad in it as a as somebody that you always expect is going to do something nefarious but never does. Um, so that was my other aspect, uh, thing to, to interrogate here. The, 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 the plane, right? The sort of pale horse of the plane, which I guess sort of mirrors the plane to Miami that Fredo is going to take in Godfather 2. Um, but, uh, but sort of like taking off and landing and kind of like cruising off in the, in the black car. Um, <laughs> and I love that car, right? And at the end, it being washed with the Jimmy Hoffa bumper sticker on it, yeah. and the idea that ultimately it's the car that gets him. Um, I guess I, I just, wasn't I just a, didn't want it yet. Yeah.
0: I wasn't joking at the beginning when I called it a sort of a, a, an elegy for the death of cinema. And I think Scorsese means. I think Scorsese means certain things about cinema. He means like a kind of Easy Riders, Raging Bulls kind of, you know, independent, highly individualistic, you know, stylistically pathbreaking uh, sort of thing. And like we'll link to the to the New York Times op-ed where he talks about like he said Marvel movies aren't cinema, and and largely it means because they're written by committee and that their their first duty is sort of commercial rather than um you know rather than to the sort of individual artistic uh, artistic impulse um And, and, you know, to a certain extent, like the mafia is the studio system, right? As, as it existed in the Easy Riders, Raging Raging Bulls period, right? Like as, as this, you know, sort of lawless, um, you know, quasi legal boys club, you know, uh, sort of institutional, but also like uh, on the outside of the real, of the real institutions and, and, you know, how all that was with these kind of four lions of this, this old way of making movies, um, you know, uh, happening like how, how it's, how that is going away. Anyway, cashing that out is, is going to be left as an exercise for the reader. Mark, do you have, do you have a parting shot, uh, parting shot for us or a, a good quote from a mafia movie that you want to yep. drop in here?
2: Sure. Just uh, briefly on this uh, net aspect, kind of the death of the mafia movie and the death of that particular brand of cinema, um, I, I I think this reflects Scorsese's. Um, there's a certain amount of ambivalence, um, or, not, or just pragmatic uh, pragmatism uh, that Scorsese expresses, even though he's lamenting the death of cinema. So in this movie, right, he's saying that you know this type of mafia movie, it's time for it to die, um, and he's and that's which is ostensibly uh, a good thing. Um, however, this type of cinema, in general speaking, is dying and that's a bad thing. Um so likewise for him like you know he makes this uh, very auteur um independent movie and that's a good thing. Um and, and also he he takes with it the uh he recognizes that it was Netflix that made it possible and Netflix um is widely seen as undermining um broadly speaking the theater the theatrical going experience. I mean there's a whole lot of access and dimension around like supporting auteurs and that sort of thing. Um but still like Scorsese kind of knows that like I think I see him as expressing that like um, an era is passing, and we're moving on to something else new and something different, and the old rules don't apply.
0: Yeah, there's for example, you know,
1: yeah. Sorry,
0: no. What's what what's the old rule that doesn't apply anymore? I'm dying to know.
1: Oh, that the movie should be fun and enjoyable to watch in one sitting. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> oh. Like, I'm really glad I didn't watch this one. In the wow, <laughs> you consider
0: you can consider the Irishman. Con- I don't know. I w- I would have actually really loved to see it in large format. Um, But maybe I just need to buy a bigger TV. All right. With that, with Pete's comment, you can consider the Irishman conclusively whacked. Uh, We'll be back next week with more (laughs) overthinking and podcasts because we too are the stationary bandits here uh, putting our, our, you know, quasi legal speech in your ear every week until then, visit us on the web at overthinking it.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably,
2: probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve Mama Mia always said, life is like a box of cannoli.
1: Never know what you're going to get.
0: I mean, presumably cannoli.
1: I don't think there were any cannoli in this movie, because if they were, someone would have left a gun and taken it or maybe left the cannoli and taken the gun and regretted it for the rest of their life.